This is Growing Pulse Crops, and I'm your host, Tim Hamrich. Today, we get a rare opportunity to explore an emerging commercial pulse crop, sweet lupins, with Dr. Mike Osley. It's actually really an exciting time to be in the lupin world right now because there's a lot of interest in it, I think, all around in people looking for some new food ingredients, for instance, on the buyer side, and as well as uh, some farmers that are interested in getting something a little bit different in their crop rotation. Dr. Mike Osley is the director of the Carrington Research Extension Center at North Dakota State University. Prior to taking on that role a couple years ago, he'd worked for 10 years as the research agronomist at Carrington, looking at weed science, new crop development, intercropping, precision ag, cover crops, and the interactions of all those areas. Mike first appeared on this show back in our bonus intercropping panel episode in January of 2021. Today, though, we're looking at a new pulse crop, at least to this show and to most commercial producers in the U.S., lupins, specifically sweet white lupins. Mike's predecessor, Blaine Schatz, had been working on lupin development for about a decade there at Carrington. Back in the early 2000s, a private company that was developing lupin varieties had gone out of business and the germplasm was given to NDSU to work on varieties. So they kind of took things from there. Now they're close to releasing some new varieties and Mike joins the show to share why this is exciting for growers and for the pulse crops industry in general. While these varieties of sweet white lupins will be new to U.S. growers, there's also an initiative up in Canada to develop and release blue lupins, which have a lot of the same qualities, like being strong nitrogen fixers and phosphorus scavengers and producing a high protein legume. Also, Mike noted that there is some existing production of sweet lupin in Australia that mainly ends up going to pet food and livestock feed industries there. But today's episode, we're going to focus specifically on the white lupins that they're developing at NDSU. A lot of interesting stuff to share about the market potential and the opportunities for farmers to grow this emerging crop. So enjoy this deep dive into sweet lupins with Dr. Mike Osley. If people are familiar with lupins in the past, it's you might occasionally see it in something like a cover crop mix, uh, sometimes might include a lupin, or uh, maybe more commonly, if you're if you're in the Great Plains of the U.S. and, and you've gone uh, on a lot of hiking and that kind of thing, you've maybe seen some wild lupins. And so uh, one of the big differences here is that, uh, you know, the wild lupins are usually uh, perennial in nature. And of course, the, the annual lupins that we're growing for crop production are a little bit different. So, I mean, not only do these annual lupins have larger seeds like you would expect in an annual crop, but uh, one of the major things is that the perennial lupins, the seed's not edible anyway, because they have a very high alkaloid content. And uh, the, the lupins that we're working at with now on the crop side, uh, fairly recently, uh, have been developed with uh, low alkaloid content. And alkaloids, not only are they somewhat toxic at high enough levels, but uh, they also taste uh, really bitter. And so they give the uh, bad flavor to the crop. And so these low alkaloid lupins are oftentimes referred to as sweet lupins. And they do have a much, uh, they actually have a really good taste. You know, a lot of pulse crops can have somewhat of a, a little bit of a bitter taste when you're eating them um, as a whole grain. But these the sweet lupins are certainly an example of something that can be eaten uh, almost as is uh, once they're softened after harvest. And uh, so the wild lupins, are those native to North America then? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there's uh, quite a, a, a wide range of species and, and, and areas that they grow in uh, throughout North America. Hmm. 
And you mentioned, you know, the good taste of these sweet lupins, the, the annual crop. Is this one of those that kind of went from being a, a crop for livestock to now we're actually looking at it as more of a, a food crop? Yeah, I definitely think we're trending in that right direction. And it's actually really an exciting time to be in the lupin world right now because uh, there's a lot of interest in it, I think, all around in people looking for some new food ingredients, for instance, on the buyer side, uh, working with some of the more established export markets that that occurs particularly in Asia, and as well as uh, some farmers that are interested in getting something a little bit different in their crop rotation. Uh, So all three of those are kind of coming together somewhat coincidentally right now, um, as we're probably, you know, two years out ourselves from releasing uh, the first uh, lupin varieties in the United States uh, for quite some time. There used to be a limited commercial production of lupins uh, back in the uh, 1980s and, and early 90s, but those uh, that, that production kind of died out around that time. And, and so there hasn't really been any commercial production of lupins now for over 25 years in the U.S. And then so is the hope that these new varieties you're coming out with in a couple of years is going to kind of start changing that? Absolutely. Uh, as I said, uh, you, you know, we're really working, trying to work on all facets of this to to try to essentially launch a brand new cropping option for the kind of the upper plains up here. Uh, something that I think will hold a lot of appeal uh, for a lot of different reasons. And um, so some of our goals is to make sure that everybody's on the same page and that we do have markets that are interested in buying the lupins. At the same time, we have people interested in growing the lupins. Yeah, and let's talk about that that last part about the interest in growing the lupins. You know, and I know this is a big assumption, but let's assume that the market is there. What what's the compelling uh, reasons that that a farmer might want to consider? You know, buying some of the seed and planting some lupins. Yeah, so I, I think uh, you know, as I mentioned, lupins are a legume crop, and so you know, probably some of the things you might compare it to would be something like a field pea. Uh, in particular, or faba bean would be some of the closest comparisons that we have. And so when a, when a person's looking at adding these into rotation, you know, you look at them in a similar spot in your rotation as with those crops. Now, lupins are different than any of the other pulses in a couple of ways. Um, maybe most notably, the pods happen on the top half of the plant. And so, uh, you know, unlike even a soybean or so where you have to almost scoop dirt to, to get all the pods off the ground. Sometimes uh, you're able to harvest the lupins well off the ground in some cases. Uh, you maybe would think of it in the same way, like uh, architecture-wise, like a canola plant would be in that, uh, you know, the first uh, uh, foot or, or two of the plant is going to be stem, and then the pods will happen um, after that point. And as a side benefit there as well, the lupins also don't lodge. And so the odds are most years, those pods are going to stay pretty high off the ground, making harvestability really easy. Uh, and surprisingly, you know, even with very limited variety development, the yields can be quite substantial still. I will say that the lupins have pretty wide adaptability in the Northern Plains in the fact that uh, they produce reasonable yield under those very large drought conditions. But when they're provided water, the yield potential is quite high. And so uh, whether you're in an area with very low water, uh, like a lot of the areas in Australia where they're growing, 
or if you're an area even um, into you know northern Minnesota, uh, you're very likely to to see it have a fit in, in a rotation because you know we've seen yields get up to uh, you know 60 to 70 bushels an acre with uh, lupins, which again is very competitive with uh, a lot of crops in the area, especially considering there's not been a lot of work put into genetic development of the lupins in the past. So, you know, some of the other things that distinguish lupins from other uh, pulse crops, it is uh, more of a taproot design to the root system compared to a lot of the other legumes, which are uh, more of a fibrous root. And so it is something that will, you know, provide a different root structure and a different way to extract nutrients compared to the other crops. In fact, it's uh, known to be a, a phosphorus scavenger. Uh, similar to other crops like buckwheat or something like that, and unique, again, among the legumes in its ability to do that. Uh, and it's a very high nitrogen fixer. Faba beans are right now known, I think, in our area as the, the pulse crop that has the highest potential nodulation, but the lupins are are right there with them as far as the ability to to nodulate and, and, and fix nitrogen. And the result is one of the very highest uh, protein contents among the pulse crops. Again, very similar to what faba beans can do. Very interesting. And, and the, the phosphorus mining ability, does that have to do with the root architecture or is that because of some sort of relationship with some mycorrhizal fungi of some sort or what's uh, what causes that? Yeah, so the lupins are, are very low uh, mycorrhizal hosts. So uh, they, they don't have very strong affinity to mycorrhizal fungi. Uh, so very likely that's maybe why they're a scavenger of phosphorus, right? Because they don't have those associations. That's really interesting. Yeah. Almost the opposite of what I would have thought because they don't have the, the relationship. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense actually. So hypothetically, it's kind of this interesting, you know, uh, conundrum where, you know, you have a crop that could potentially help to to mine some of the unavailable phosphorus sources in the soil, as as well as a nitrogen fixer at the same time. And so, from a soil health standpoint, I think it can be a really intriguing option. And and it really is one of the reasons why it has been considered as a, a cover crop in some cases. But I think one thing that's limited it in the past is just that there hasn't been the availability. It does suffer from the same problem that a lot of other pulse crops have, and that's a it's a very large seed. In fact, it, it might be, you know, depending on the year, it might be the largest pulse seed that there is. And so from a cover crop standpoint, that's a big disadvantage uh, because you, you have to have a lot of weight per area in order to get a, a good stand in a cover crop setting and a crop setting as well. I mean, logistically, you need to plant a lot of seed per acre or a lot of weight per acre uh, to get a good stand. And I mean, the the stems of this crop must be really strong to have the pods that high up in the plant and be that large. Yeah. And so, again, when you look at some of the other legumes out there, the way that the stems are, I would compare them most closely to a soybean. So they do have, you know, much firmer and rigid stem, you know, uh, compared to something like a field pea, especially. I, I will say that when you do have the very highest yield potentials out there, the harvest conditions, you know, the plants are, can be pretty tough. And so, you know, that's a lot of material going through the combine. Um, and, and you know, the bigger the plants are, just it can be a lot of material in there and it can be a challenge. But now, does that help it to be more resilient under, you know, various climate conditions, be it wind or, you know, hail or 
drought or, you know, those types of stressors? Uh, yeah, quite possibly. And, and it certainly would be a, a reason why it is uh, pretty resistant to lodging. And so I'd say I've grown it most years um, out at the research center since I started in 2012. And um, of those years, only, only two of them we've seen lodging. And, and again, those were the, on the very highest yielding years. So yeah, the, the stem material can be pretty uh, thick and rigid sometimes, but it's usually in proportion to the, the, the yield you're getting. So <laughs> it's it's usually a good sign when you have those big plants. Uh, but, you know, forewarning, it will be a, a little bit more for the combine to go through as well. And you mentioned the yields like in wet area, like a Minnesota might get up to 60 bushels the acre in more of a drier area, like maybe close to Carrington. Uh, what type of yields would you expect once these varieties come out? You know, it, this is a crop where I would probably suspect, you know, if it, if it was growing on the, on the statewide average, uh, we're probably looking at something in the low 40s uh, for a, a statewide potential. And, you know, on, on those very dry years. You know, I think in 2021, when we had that absolutely devastating drought here, um, you know, we were looking at, you know, low 20s for, for our yields out here. And, you know, the plants were, you know, maybe less than two feet tall that year, whereas normally they get, you know, three to four feet tall. So uh, now, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but that doesn't sound all that different from soybean. Yeah, again, it Whatever you're getting for like a, a typical wheat yield or soybean yield somewhere, I mean, I th those would be the type of uh, yield projections you could probably expect from lupins in your area. You probably can't reach the top ends uh, a yield for either of those crops, but I, th I think the lupins will be uh, somewhere a little bit above the bottom of those yields as well. So you, you don't have the you don't have that extremely high ceiling like you know some people got hundred bushel you know wheat this year. I, I don't I don't don't think that's reasonable to expect with lupins, but, you know, in the very best situation, you maybe, maybe something like 80 bushels would be the top end yield I could foresee, you know, and then at the same time, I know I've seen wheat yields, uh, you know, less than what we got with those uh, lupins a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And well, and of course, wheat has had a little bit of a head start when it comes to genetic improvement, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, well, let's, uh, let's talk about the, um, the agronomics here, you, you know, you compared them to to field peas. Are we going to plant them about the same time as field peas? What other considerations might we have if we've grown peas before and we're going to consider these lupins? Yeah, so the the lupins are a longer season crop than field peas, but they are a cool season crop like the field peas. And so they're very uh, resilient to uh, early season frosts. So you'd very likely be looking at um, about that same planting time. If, if I had to pick between the two, I would say it's maybe just a little more important to get the peas in earlier. You know, so if, if you're planting both crops, I'd plant them just a, a hair earlier uh, than the lupins. But most of that is actually because of uh, root rot considerations. So, you know, the field peas, they suffer from a range of root rot complex issues. Uh, the lupins don't have that same problem, and so you can get away with probably a little bit wider planting window than normal. Um, however, you're still going to be well ahead in planting the lupins early uh, because of the longer season. You're going to be very likely looking to harvest lupins uh, right before soybean harvest. So it'd be something where you probably plant about the same time as a field pea, somewhere around mid or, or late April a lot of years, uh, in our area at least. And then you'd be harvesting them well after field peas, you know, again, kind of right before the time you get to soybeans. So 
uh, most years that would be sometime in like early or mid-September for harvest time frame. Uh, this year it was October uh, here because uh, it's just been <laughs> it's been a, a such a delayed harvest uh, where we're at right now for for all of our crops. But uh, but that's kind of what I would expect. So it's it really probably taking advantage of our the whole season up here in North Dakota uh, at least as much as any other crop that we can grow. Yeah. And and what types of soils do do lupins like? Uh, it can be a pretty wide range of soils. I, I don't have any direct experience with this, but uh, I, I've been warned to stay away from very high pH soils. Uh, so calcareous uh, type soils don't play well with lupins. And, you know, maybe it would have something to do with the uh, uh, phosphorus interaction that we had talked about a little bit earlier. Um, and the fact, you know, so sometimes those high pH calcareous soils can really bind up the phosphorus. It may be... My hypothesis is that it's maybe uh, tied up too tight for the lupins to extract it, but there could, there's possibly other reasons. I'm not an, entirely familiar with uh, with why the high pH is an issue. And conversely, can they do better than other crops in low pH soils? Uh, you know, that's a good question. I don't have a good answer for that. I, I think there's a, a good chance to to believe that they they would do okay in in low pH soils, but I, I don't know that they'd be any any better than other options or not. And as far as pests and diseases, you'd mentioned the root rots earlier, where where they are not maybe susceptible to the same root rots as like a field pea. In the research and development that you've done over these past you know ten plus years, what have you noticed about their susceptibility to various pests and diseases? Yeah, so the the biggest issue that a person's going to want to uh, worry about in in the lupin production is uh, well, well, two. I mean, there's the weed management aspect, uh, but also uh, anthracnose is going to be uh, the biggest disease issue to watch out for. So that that can severely uh, impact your lupin production. Uh, maybe somewhat comparable to uh, like lentils, for instance. So in those areas that do have um, higher rainfall higher humidity and that kind of thing, you, you're probably going to be looking at maybe one to two fungicide applications to help manage that. But in the dry areas, probably not needed. You know, most years here in Carrington, uh, we haven't had to resort to fungicides. Uh, but this year, for instance, uh, we did put out two fungicide applications. One was really needed. The other one was just in case, I would say. And are they on label, I guess, for those products? Yep. So, uh, you know, and that's another interesting thing, too, if we, uh, if we want to swing into to weed management a little bit. But uh, lupins actually are labeled already for quite a lot of pesticides. And part of that is because they still fall under, in many cases, a dry bean. Um, so dry bean is a very broad term on a lot of uh, pesticide labels that include things beyond what we would normally consider a dry bean. Um, and, and a lot of them specifically do have lupins in that uh, dry bean category. Well, that's a huge advantage for a new crop. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you go in already with a, a little bit of a, a suite of products to work with. But, you know, again, certainly, you know, you always wish there were more. So now if we look at what some of the weed management options are, um, you know, people looking at a new crop will be glad to see that the options are better than something like a lentil, for instance, but not unfortunately as good as field peas or conventional soybeans. So there's a really nice set of products that can be used pre-emerge on lupins. 
uh, only a handful of things that can be used post-emerge. Now, one of the, the key products that can be used that a lot of pulse crops can't have is uh, uh, fomesophen, uh, or in the U.S. known as a Reflex or, or, or Flexstar, although the Reflex product is the one that's labeled in Lupin. So uh, that has a lot of advantages uh, to other pulse crops in that it is a product that can be used on uh, some hard-to-control weeds like kosher or lamb's quarters. Whereas, you know, a lot of the other pulse crops limited to something like Raptor and, or, or Varisto or, or what have you, which for better or worse, uh, that product actually does not have a label in lupins. So unlike almost all the other pulse crops, uh, the Bassagran product or Bentazon is not labeled. So that is one of the very notable things about lupins compared to the other crops. So some little quirks that a person will have to watch out for. Right. And what about harvest considerations? I mean, uh, how are we harvesting these? And then I, I also read briefly before this interview about split seed becoming a problem. So I don't know if you've run into that at all. Sure. So historically, lupins have been very indeterminate. And so if anybody happens to have been some of the people growing lupins in the past, uh, they may have experienced you know, times when the lupins just keep uh, flowering and, and putting on new branches and pods. And so desiccants would have been more common. And now some of these newer varieties, they're much more determinant, still not completely so. Uh, so most of the time, I believe that desiccants are, are not going to be required. But I, I think a person would want to be ready uh, to have a desiccant ready to go. Because again, in a fall like we have here, where the moisture just keeps uh, coming a little bit at a time, it's going to be better just to go in and, and shut those plants down at some point in those kind of situations. So, you know, that aside, uh, when you do get to the harvest operation, uh, you, yeah, you're going to be able to go in with a, a straight header and, you know, certainly splits would be something you'd want to watch out for. But again, compared to a lot of our other legume crops, uh, they are relatively difficult to split. So it could be an issue, but you know, most of the time when we have seed coming in, uh, there, there's a, it's a very low percent uh, compared to a lot of the other uh, legumes that we deal with. Well, that's more good news. Um, you know, with, with some of the benefits here that are really interesting, why do you think lupins have not been mainstream up to this point? You know, what's what's taken this crop so long to kind of get to the point where it's ready for prime time? Yeah, you know, that's a really good question. I, I guess I'm not entirely familiar with, uh, you know, how it's developed over over the years, but I, I think part of it is is just familiarity and history with the, with the other products. You know, they're, right now, you know, outside of the, you know, the animal food market, all the other markets are still emerging, if you will. Uh, you know, there is limited human consumption markets over in Asia right now. Um, and so there there's a, at least a small part where the lupins, you know, have been fitting already, you know, certainly the the growth of plant-based proteins right now has been a, a big driver, I think, in some of the interests in in entering more human food markets. And so, yeah, it's really a lot of things. You know, the other pulse crops have been much more established in the past, you know, and they didn't have alkaloid issues with the seed. And so, you know, those are easier just to, to move into, you know, especially when you talk about livestock-driven markets. We're going to go with the options that we know will work most of the time. Um, you know, it takes something more like 
the human food markets in order to drive more of the variety developments. Because inherently it has this this bad characteristic, right? This alkaloid content. You know, both the toxicity and the flavor are bad when it has those. Uh, so it takes a little bit of effort to remove those. And, you know, very likely, I think, coupled with the expansion of the soybean acres, you know, in, in most of the, the U.S., really limited where it can go. And, you know, and you had field peas and some other pulse crops from the north uh, that already kind of dominated those markets. And so lupins, I think, are something that fits kind of at the threshold of those two places of where you have the field pea acres and the soybean acres. And so there really wasn't necessarily a, a need rotationally in the past on the farmer side either to have something different than those two crops. Now I think we're at a point where, you know, we have so many acres of soybeans everywhere. And then, you know, we're, I, I don't think geographically we're looking to expand anywhere else where something like uh, field peas or some of the other pulse crops are going to be able to grow. Uh, so now you have a crop like lupin that environmentally is much more adaptable, I think, to a lot of these areas that are kind of uh, intermediate, again, where this threshold between soybean and, and field peas hits. So it's, uh, I, I think, a good fit right now. But certainly, I think the human food markets are really interesting here. And I, I think they're just going to continue to grow as lupins will have some advantages that other pulse crops don't have as far as being able to be a protein source in, in a lot of these plant-based markets. Have you have you had a chance to taste them yet? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, one of the things that we're working on this year is is doing some taste testing among the varieties. So we've been doing the the analytical tests in the you know the past couple of years, uh, you know, just confirming that we have low alkaloid content and and what our protein levels and, and whatnot are. And uh, this year, here in about a month or so, uh, we're going to start looking at uh, doing some taste testing between the varieties because I, I really do think that that's going to be an important component here. And I will say that in the past, when we have uh, taste tested, uh, that uh, my my preference is is lupins compared to any other uh, legume crop right now when you're eating it just straight out of the field. So uh, flavor-wise, I think people are going to be pretty impressed uh, with this product. Wow. So are, are most people eating it in a similar way to, to dry edible beans or are they eating it like a edamame? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a great question. And those are some of the things that we're working with different. Uh, uh, we have four different companies we've been talking to, four different end users on some of the things they might want to do with it. I would say the most common thing right now is, is as a flour. So uh, it'd be used as a protein flour. Again, whether it's used directly as as a standalone product, not very often, actually, or uh, more often as a, something that goes in as a food ingredient for, again, a, a protein source in the, in the food product. So, so right now, flour is the biggest market, but I think there's a lot more potential out there. And, and, the, and the end users we're looking at are interested uh, in what some of those alternative uh, end uses are, whether it is as a, a whole bean as itself or a canned product or what have you. Well, this is exciting. I'm sure it's exciting for you after working on this for so long. Uh, maybe talk about, you know, uh, how it feels to you to be getting closer to to the the point at which, you know, more farmers can commercially grow the stuff that you've been involved with for so many years. Yeah, you know, I, it is actually really exciting. Again, most of what I've done in the past is uh, related to, you know, especially variety testing, variety development, those kind of things, uh, which is always exciting when you 
come in and okay well you're testing experimental wheat and oh next year this experimental wheat is is going to be awesome for farmers in our area and it's exciting to you know talk about the new newest varieties uh, but you know I, I think when we start talking about a new crop species introduction which essentially has almost no commercial production but uh, very viable markets already established you know it's a whole other like level of excitement in my book like Okay, and we're not not just talking about new varieties here. We're talking about a whole new cropping option for our area, and um, I think that's uh, really exciting in my book. Well, that is indeed exciting. Uh, hopefully, we can do a follow up episode on this topic someday with growers trying out these new varieties once they've had a chance to be out on the market. Thank you very much to Dr. Mike Osley for joining the show today. Really enjoyed learning about lupins and the potential here for farmers to grow this new crop in the future. I'm going to leave some links in the show notes if you'd like to learn more about lupins and to Mike's first appearance on the show talking about intercropping. Make sure you're a subscriber to the Growing Pulse Crops podcast so you don't miss our next episode with farmer Sam Arnson and Northern Pulse Growers Association executive director shannon burnt people are overall excited next year for pulses to put in into their rotation if their rotation allows it and i mean by that is their crop rotation and or chemical herbicide usage if it's open for pulses i think a lot of uh, acres are going to go in next year locally Green lentils are close to that 50 cent a pound market right now. And um, usually past history indicates that when they get that high, people go heavy on the seeding with those because that's, that's pretty good money. Again, make sure you follow this show and subscribe so you don't miss an episode. The Growing Pulse Crops podcast series is produced by Dr. Audrey Kalisle and myself in collaboration with the Pulse Crops Working Group. This show is made possible by the generous support of our sponsors, the Northern Pulse Growers Association, the North Central IPM Center, USDA NIFA, and the USA Dry Pea and Lentil Council. We're releasing these episodes twice per month throughout the season, and we want to make sure the information stays relevant to you. So if you're finding it useful, we'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and feel free to tweet us by using the hashtag growingpulsecrops. We'll be back with another great episode in a couple weeks.